Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. Welcome back to The New World Next Week. We give you the context and the subtext to some of the most important stories going on in your world. And we'll begin with an interesting one from the most transparent White House ever and how they rewrote the Freedom of Information Act to suppress sensitive documents. We'll take this from the Washington Examiner, who notes that it is Sunshine Week, and as you're now viewing this, it is the first day of spring. And we'll wonder for Sunshine Week if some enterprising reporter will ask Jay Carney, the White House press whore, why Obama wrote the Freedom of Information Act without telling the rest of America. The rewrite came in an April 15th tax day here in America, of course, 2009 memo from then White House counsel Greg Craig instructing the executive branch to let a White House officials review any documents sought by FOIA requesters that involved White House equities. That phrase is nowhere to be found in the FOIA, yet the Obama White House effectively amended the law to create a new exception to justify keeping public documents locked away from the public. The Greg memo is described in detail in a new study made public by Cause of Action a Washington-based nonprofit watchdog group that monitors government transparency and accountability. James, as always, will give all the links to all the sources cited in these episodes so you can learn more about Sunshine Week. But why would we start with such an almost seemingly mundane story? Of course the administrations lie about how open they are. What would this lead to? And I think the related stories in this first segment on this episode 186 of New World Next Week, I think kind of sheds a, a light on that. So before we get into perhaps Cass Sunstein, culture of misinformation, medical conspiracy theories, and Reddit, and all that much more, James, just a quick comment about FOIA documents. Well, in fact, I was going to say much the same thing that you were, um, just basically that this is very much what we would expect um, for anyone who's really been keeping a close eye on these issues for any length of time. They know that the government is always trying to find ways to subvert uh, freedom of information and to try to keep things locked away. And uh, of course, I've done numerous uh, episodes of the eye opener and some of my other video reports on Obama and his so-called transparency. But let's get into those related um, about Cass Sunstein, because I think that's exceptionally important. And the first one that we have is uh, one that you tweeted out, uh, a little uh, op-ed that Cass Sunstein wrote uh, that appeared in the Malay Mail Online, and I'm sure other sources besides. Let's talk a little bit about that. It's called Everywhere You Look, There's Conspiracy Afoot. And I'll just read the brief first couple of sentences. Conspiracy theories surround us, writes Cass Sunstein. Witness the reactions on the internet to the tragic and mysterious disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Ukraine, NSA, assassinations of national leaders, recent economic crises, the authorship of Shakespeare's plays, its child's play to assemble a host of apparent clues and con to connect a bunch of dots to support a relevant conspiracy theory. And he asks, why do people accept such theories? So we'll thank Lisa Pease, actually, for jumping on the tweets on this and, and commenting, and we'll include links to that as well. And Cass Sunstein actually did a conspiracy-related AMA, Ask Me Anything, on Reddit. James, why do these conspiracy theories persist, and why do people ask questions? Is it because we're constantly lied to and kept in the dark about things that pertain to us? So another one making the rounds today, and of course it's funny how it all kind of goes together in the zeitgeist, 
another one making the rounds. It's on NPR. It's on all the major, you know, almost kind of faux progressive sites. Half of Americans believe in medical conspiracy theories, and they go on to poo-poo all those idiots out there questioning vaccines and all of those sorts of things. So, James, gosh, why why would people believe in medical conspiracy theories? Could it be perhaps maybe about the Tuskegee or Guatemala syphilis experiments? Or what do you got? Yeah, the actual medical conspiracies that have been proven to have taken place in the past. um, Could that inform our our views of what's taking place right now? Oh, perhaps. And it's interesting um, if people go and read that Cass Sunstein op-ed, if they can hold their nose and uh, and hold the bile back in their throat long enough to get through it. I mean, it it does throw out all of the old canards that we would expect, talking about, oh, maybe aliens did... Flight 370, as if that's, you know, what that's the serious conspiracy theory that's being bandied about. And of course it is, as always, just trying to tar everyone with the same brush and trying to make everything sound like this one big hodgepodge of craziness that's not based on any facts. And I will... T- uh, tip my hat to at Light Viper on Twitter for also tweeting out um, Cass Sunstein is working on a new book about conspiracy theories and linking to a Bloomberg TV report. Federal Reserve is not a conspiracy, says Cass Sunstein, and I hope people will go and watch that because it relates very much to what I'm working on on my Federal Reserve documentary, which is, it was a proven, admitted conspiracy by the conspirators who 30 years after the fact, wrote uh, editorials about how they conspired on Jekyll Island to form the Federal Reserve. It's an openly admitted conspiracy, and here's Cass Sunstein coming along to tell you you're crazy if you believe that. So it just goes right in the face of of, uh, of facts, but I think that's the point. Basically, they're getting people to divide up into teams. Um, you're not going to go out on that fringe conspiracy uh, ba- a branch, are you? you? You know that's just craziness, and only crazy people hang out on that branch. Well, if uh, people like Cass Sunstein are attempting to define where or where not where I can't go um, uh, cognitively speaking, I think I'll be happy to uh, to ignore him and and his cronies. And I think that the L.A. Times uh, article that you cite there, nearly half of Americans subscribe to a medical conspiracy theory. I think that's actually a good sign. I think, hey, that means we're winning because it means more and more people are tuning out of the mainstream garbage and are trying to think for themselves. And not everyone is right about all of the conspiracy theories they come up with. But at any rate, I'm glad that people are questioning the authority and looking into these facts for themselves. And I can tell from my own firsthand experience that Rockefeller Medicine is one of the most popular episodes of my podcast I've come out with in a long time because a lot of people do know that we have been lied to, medically speaking, for a long time. So we're winning. People like Cass Sunstein are panicking. No one's going to buy his his ridiculous book, and uh, no one on Reddit seemed to be believing his "Ask Me Anything." So I think we are we are definitely winning this uh, this battle for information. Just as a, at a at a quick glance, I, th- I saw on Reddit most of the people were like, "Who is this guy? What the crap is he even talking about? He doesn't seem to know what he's doing." The last related James will include comes from, I think, the only Congress critter worth anything is our Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, who says the CIA is, quote, embedded in a culture of misinformation. So, again, just bringing it full circle of why people ask questions is because they're lied to and fed misinformation and disinformation by the very folks we supposedly employ and pay for. Now, James, having said that, we'll move with quite a difference to our second story this week. And it comes from Slate, and and it's on my Twitter feed at Media Monarchy. The first reporter to write a story on the L.A. earthquake Monday on St. Patrick's Day, the 17th, was not a person. Ken Schwinke, a journalist and programmer for the Los Angeles Times, was jolted awake 625 a.m. Monday by an earthquake. 
He rolled out of bed, went straight to his computer, where he found a brief story about the quake already written and waiting in his system. He glanced over it, hit publish, and that's how the Los Angeles Times became the first media outlet on to report on the Monday quake. He says we thought they had it up in about three minutes. And it appeared under Ken Schwenke's byline, but the real author was an algorithm called QuakeBot. He developed it a little over two years ago whenever an alert comes in from the U.S. Geological Survey, USGS, about an earthquake of a certain size threshold. QuakeBot is programmed to extract the relevant data from the USGS report and plug it into a pre-written template. That story then goes into the Times content management system where it awaits review and publication by a human editor. By noon Pacific time on Monday, QuakeBot's story had been updated 71 times by humans, turning it into an in-depth front-page story. QuakeBot is not the first of its kind at the Los Angeles Times. Schwinky and his colleagues on the paper's data team modeled it on a similar bot that generates automatic reports about homicides in the paper's coverage area. James, I find this fascinating. Well, you're not the only one, but uh, I guess as a point of fact, uh, although the LA Times might have been the first to come out with it in print, of course, we all know it was KTLA that was reporting it live on air. uh, What's what? There's an earthquake. There's an earthquake Um, with that famous viral video um, of the reporter on air with that. But yes, uh, this is an interesting story because it it points out that something that I think is developing in uh, in in the entire world of, of journalism right now, which is a separation that's forming between just the data itself, the raw data that people report on, and this, the analysis of the stories. Uh, and the raw data, you know, algorithms and computers are great at correlating that and putting it, um, and now they're even starting to put it semantically into uh, sentences that can be read by human beings. So we are uh, we are on the cusp of, uh, really, I, 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 don't, I don't fear this. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, this is just, uh, like anything else, it's just something that could be used for good or evil, I suppose. But in this case, I think it's a, it's it can be used for some very helpful things. For example, there was that story recently of that app that came out that will now t- uh, live uh, send a message to your to your iPhone or your slave device of choice every time there's a drone strike, uh, an American drone strike anywhere in the world, so you can keep up to date with the latest death and carnage in the phony war on terror. So uh, again, there are some useful ways to put this to work. Um, and there was something that I mentioned in my presentation on open source journalism. It was a, an, a 2006 article um, by Peter Holovaty. Uh, sorry, Adrian Holovaty, um, called A Fundamental Way Newspaper Sites Need to Change. And I suggest people go and have a read through that because it is an interesting article about this idea of using data as a new way of presenting journalism. Stories that are uh, about about the data itself, the underlying data, so that a story about an earthquake can be about the the location, the strength of the earthquake, the uh, the the intensity, the number of seconds that it lasted, the, the aftershocks, the all of that data can be categorized and and laid out in a way like this QuakeBot, I suppose, does. So uh, again, it's an interesting development, and uh, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, just as long as we keep it in perspective. That again, we do need the humans to contextualize this data. I, I, in a way, I'm almost more fascinated about what kind of reports it would generate about homicides, but we'll have to save that for a, a different time or my own research, perhaps. Our third and final story this week, James, comes via the Daily Mail as UK scientist hidden links to GMO food giants exposed. 
the authors of a study calling for GMO crops to be fast-tracked into Britain's farms and kitchens all have links to the industry. The report was presented as the work of independent scientists and was published by a government advisory body. It was used to support a bid to speed up the development of the controversial crops in the UK, but it emerged that all five authors have a vested interest in promoting GMO crops and foods, and some are even part-funded by that industry. And you can get the story, and we do name the names, Professor Sir David Balcom. He works for Syngenta. Professor Jonathan Jones, he gets all his money from the government. Professor Jim Dunwell, involved with CropGen. Professor John Pickett, involved heavily in GM research and even destroying other folks' anti-GM research, and Professor Puig Domenich, who co-chairs events sponsored and paid for by Monsanto, Bayer, and DuPont. And we'll include some of the other news stories about those scientists saying we need to you know, speed up GM crops in the UK and dismissing the conspiracy theorists as, as having a neurosis and as well links to their PDFs and the pages that they actually wrote and have been stamped by the government. So, James, this is just another example of, to put it very simply, it's a conflict of interest. Yes, or one might even say a conspiracy. Hmm. Um, exactly right. And just to give people an idea of the mindset of this, I'll turn to one of my favorite sources on the GM topic, gmwatch.org, which always has uh, very interesting articles and uh, just one that came out a few weeks ago, uh, The Infanticide Advocate Promoting Golden Rice, which says, quote, uh, Peter Singer, the Princeton University professor who wrote Animal Liberation, the book said to have inspired the modern animal rights movement, has just written an article promoting golden rice and GMOs. The article also also gives a hat tip to Patrick Moore's golden rice campaign that seeks to blame Greenpeace and its allies for the death of vitamin A deficient children. In his article, Singer presents himself as Mr. Reasonable, as well as having historically been very cautious about GM. But what Singer doesn't tell his readers is that he has long thrown caution to the wind when it comes to the uses of biotech. Thus, in his 2002 overview of the politics of transhumanism, Singer writes, Writings on the permissibility of euthanizing certain disabled newborns inspired howls of outrage and accusations of fascism. But the singer also argues, we must employ the new genetic and neurological sciences to identify and modify the aspects of human nature that cause conflict and competition. So here we have this transhumanist promoting, infanticide promoting, uh, bestiality promoting. That's another one of his little uh, gems that he's come out with in, in one of his books, uh, Dearest Pet on Bestiality. Uh, uh, again, just, uh, I mean, just a crazy the craziness behind uh, some of the people who are promoting this and now he again is claiming the moral high ground because oh he you know oh if you don't if you're not for golden rice then you're for killing a uh, uh, vitamin a deficient children which of course uh we've there there is Golden rice is is a failed technology at this point. It has not actually produced what it said it's uh, going to produce. But on a positive note, I think people are more and more waking up to this and more and more demanding action um, on this very subject. And on that note, I'll uh, throw it over to acbio.org.za, which is the African Center for Biosafety, which had a press release just a couple of days ago. Monsanto forced to withdraw unsubstantiated advertising claims on benefits of GM crops. 
Advertising Standards Authority of South Africa, which is a great story about how basically the Advertising Standards Authority of South Africa is making Monsanto retract claims from its website that it does not prove about how they help the GM crops enable us to produce more food sustainability while using fewer resources, blah, 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 all of the same PR garbage that has absolutely no science for it, and in fact, a lot of science against it. And Monsanto is finally, in South Africa of all places, is finally being taken to task for spouting this PR crap on their website. So uh, so the uh, baby steps are being made, but unfortunately, very powerful, very rich, very well-funded sources are arrayed against us in this fight, and they are trying to shove this GM crap down your throat. So uh, I think people need to be aware of this and need to be exposing the, uh, the ties and speaking out against this agenda at every possible opportunity in every possible forum, including in your own daily life and choosing what you put in your own body and uh, to the extent possible, mitigating that as much as possible. Well, and again, to bring it full circle, that kind of sounds like it's a medical conspiracy. So the related, and and to further back up what you were just saying, bugs have already evolved immunity to GM corn. A study published on St. Patrick's Day shows the beetle larvae developed resistance to now two strains, of course, because of the over-reliance and improper implementation of pesticides coming from big ag and we'll thank we are third.net for the anti-gmo shirt and just quickly mention james as we wrap this episode up some of our other updates and stories that we've been covering recently on new world next week as of just a couple of hours ago and possibly the story will change by the time you're watching this but probably not the australian prime minister says satellite imagery found objects related possibly to flight 370 and james will include your latest episode, How to Steal an Airplane from 9-11 to Flight 370. More bankers jumping off of buildings, 12th bankster suicide this year, thanks to at Brock West on Twitter, at Petra Kramer, points out how Cold War-hungry neocons stage-managed Liz Wall's resignation from RT, and of course, folks using hashtag New World next week to get us stories like UK nuclear power station taken offline over fears of Fukushima-style disaster and revealed the Ministry of Defense secret cyber warfare program. And also, James, the last word for me, I was recently on the Ripple Effect podcast, and that is now posted, and more and more media coming from Media Monarchy. Excellent stuff. I hope people are subscribed to the feeds there, and hopefully we're still working on the New World Next Week feed. We are. All right. Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll have that for you guys very soon. Thank you again, neuralnextweek.com. James Evan Pilato, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much.